Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well-dressed listeners, we are now three. I guess this is our fourth episode in for season five. Welcome. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and just because it has been a quite a long time since we've done a fashion history now, we thought we would take the opportunity to bring you this week's episode with the latest and greatest going on in fashion history now. Yes, absolutely. Starting with the fact that we have, after a very long hiatus, we have some new merch in our merch store, so tpublic.com mm-hmm. forward slash dressed, by a fellow fashion historian and dear friend of ours, Karen Binhorn. She did these wonderful art collages that you are just not going to want to miss. So check it out. Yes, fashion history art collage. Who doesn't love that? Yeah, and you can check out her Instagram too because she's constantly doing them and they're absolutely whimsical and wonderful. And we love them and we love you, Karen. So thank you very much. Yes, and you can there you can find totes, mugs, notebooks, t-shirts, sweatshirts, all sorts of things. Um, and you can pick the design that you like and then have it put on that particular item. Yeah, so check it out. Well, so much to talk about, so little time. We're going to cover a broad range of topics as we always do in our Fashion History Now series. Um, and we always put links in our show notes if you want to check out anything more about what we're talking about. But I kind of want to open up, April, if that's okay with you, and talk about this wonderful new collaboration in celebration of the Lunar New Year, because Barbie just announced their collaboration with Chinese couturier Gua Pei, and it is absolutely fabulous. Have you seen this? I have not. This is news to me. Please tell me. (laughs) It's so cool. So there's a Barbie Lunar New Year doll that wears, quote, a traditional Chinese dress in resplendent red, symbolizing good fortune and abundance. Featuring Gua Pei's signature embroidery detailing, this dress comes to life with symbolic golden phoenixes, representing femininity and grace, water and wave motifs, traditionally seen on the attire of royalty, symbolize wealth, nourishment, and resilience. Striking phoenix theme accessories complement her elegant look. And all the details are just exquisite. She has this wonderful gold hairpiece and hairstyle all the way to her dress and her shoes. And April, I know you know this, um, and we haven't done a Barbie fashion episode, but maybe we should because this is only the latest in a long line of fashion designer Barbie collaborations. Mm -hmm. So I guess the first one dates all the way back to 1985. Did you know this? Oscar de la Renta? It might even be earlier. Like a couple of years ago, I went to a lecture given by one of the original Barbie designers. So maybe she could be our guest. Yeah, that would be amazing. But tell me about the Oscar de la Renta. So that was, I guess, their first like fashion designer like collab. And Oscar de la Renta partnered with them in 85, as well as John Paul Gaudier. So there is an iconic (laughs) cone bra Barbie out there as well. (laughs) I'm sure those are quite the collector's items at this point. And then in the 90s, you have Bob Mackie, Donna Karen, McQueen, Mm -hmm. Vera Wang, 97, they partnered with Dior on the 50th anniversary of the house to do a a Barbie wearing an iconic bar suit. So that I would love to get my hands on. And then into the 2000s, Armani, Versace, Raban, Valentino, Comme des Garçons, Moschino. So more fashion designer collaborations in the future, please. We will definitely keep our eyes out. 
Yes. Well, that is quite fortuitous that you just mentioned Moschino because I also would like to talk about fashion collaborations for Lunar New Year because lots of different brands are creating thematic collections to celebrate the Year of the Tiger, you know, obviously intended mostly for the Chinese markets, but they're very beautiful and very fun. Burberry tweaked its monogram and the colors of it a little bit to give it kind of like a tiger stripe effect. Kenzo, Stella McCartney, Valentino, Balenciaga are all doing their own striped or tiger-themed offerings. But I have to say that hands down, my favorite has to be Moschino's collection featuring Tony the Tiger. Yes. (laughs) The cartoon, I'm guessing. Yes. (laughs) So for any of our listeners who might not necessarily be familiar with the overall landscape of American breakfast cereal offerings, um, Tony the Tiger is the animated or sort of illustrated mascot of Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. And Kellogg's Frosted Flakes is kind of you know, a cereal targeted, I would argue, mainly to kids who, who you know, have this desire for copious amounts of sugar. Yeah, I'm going to say I haven't eaten it since I was a child, but it was definitely fun, a treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it makes sense that their mascot would be kind of like an animated character appealing to kids. And Tony the Tiger always appears on the cereal box. Um, and I, for one, remember tons of commercials when I was a kid. Yeah. That on, on TV that had Tony the Tiger in them. So this collection from Moschino is very tongue-in-cheek. It's a little bit nostalgic and oh-so-pop culture, which is exactly what we have come to expect from Jeremy Scott oh, yeah. over at Moschino. <laughs> and the collection is very fun. They have, you know, pseudo-reproductions of the Frosted Flakes cereal boxes and or Tony the Tiger motif that appears on sweaters and sweatshirts and sweatpants. There's a really cute t-shirt dress um, and even a clutch that is basically a reproduction of the cereal box. There's also some straight up tiger striped denim pieces in this capsule collection as well. And I just love it. I mean, this is how fashion should be fun and timely. And being uh, Jeremy is a fellow Kansas Cityan, just like me, you know, if you want to do your sister a solid and send me one of the Tony the Tiger t-shirt dresses, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> they are so cute. That's really funny that you mentioned I was not aware of this collaboration at all, but I am aware of the Disney collaboration with Minnie Mouse and Stella McCartney. Have you heard about that? No. She designed, I can't remember exactly. I wasn't prepared to talk about this today, but she designed a pantsuit for Minnie Mouse. There's some sort of anniversary coming up. And it became this hugely controversial thing. I was even contacted by a journalist at the Washington Post asking me to comment on on women in pants. And I'm like, but this is a mouse in pants. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's really funny. I think a lot of the controversy stems more from people's nostalgia for Minnie Mouse's dress than it is for anything regarding maybe gender norms, transgressions, etc. But I thought it was pretty cool that Stella McCartney was tapped to design for a cartoon. Mm-hmm. I did actually read about that because I read some of the, like, the political backlash that politicians were, like, commenting on this. I'm like, really? This is what we're doing with our time? Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no. I, like I said, I, I'm going to go with, it was, it takes away from the nostalgia to change what she's wearing, but it's not permanent and it's adorable and it's designer. So, you know, <laughs> I love that these pop culture figures um, that are not real are, in fact, fashion icons. I mean, we see that with Miss Piggy as well. Mm -hmm. 
who still needs to come on the show. Yes, I know. That would be so amazing. So obviously it's February too. It's Black History Month. We thought we would highlight some articles as well as some of our favorite Black Fashion History archives, podcasts, and Instagram accounts to share with you if you're not already following. Oprah Daily recently published an article on the Black Beauty Archives. April, are you familiar with them? I am. I have have tumbled down that rabbit hole a couple different times. Yeah, it's really easy. It's this wonderful resource that started at the start of the pandemic by New York-based makeup artist and archivist Camille Lawrence, who really wanted to course correct the traditional historical narrative of the American beauty industry, which really predominantly focuses on white women and beauty professionals. So over the years, I guess she'd had amassed this wonderful collection of photographs, makeup books, magazines that really centered the significance and changing aesthetics of Black beauty. And this served as the basis of her archives, which was created to, quote, preserve, document, and celebrate the history of Black beauty through cosmetics and Black beauty culture. So they have a wonderful Instagram. They have a wonderful website. Their archives are structured around three pillars. So oral history, people's personal experiences, and recollections, and they have the physical, so material culture. So they have all these wonderful beauty tools, cosmetics, ads, and then rituals. So quote, how practitioners across the African diaspora create, share, pass down ancestral knowledge through Black beauty practices. So check out their archives and their website. Um, And of course, we will be including notes to all of these links in our show notes. And for those of you um, who are interested in researching Black fashion history, I have a little pro tip, actually, because, Cass, did you know that the archives for Ebony and Jet magazine have both been digitized and are available for free on Google Books? I did, and it's a wonderful resource. We actually use it quite frequently for our own research, so Mm -hmm. highly recommend Yeah, so um, Ebony Magazine is digitized from 1959 all the way through 2000, and Jet Magazine is digitized from 1950 to 2005, and you can keyword search. So if you're looking for something in particular, um, it's a super awesome resource. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, and I want to, I forgot to mention one other Instagram account, Black Fashion Archive is the personal blog and Instagram of Ricky Bird that documents fashion and style across the Black diaspora. And both of those accounts, the Black Beauty Archives and the Black Fashion Archive, just like daily doses of the most wonderful fashion history archives, um, images, videos, links to articles. So definitely check those out. And also for your listening pleasure, our fellow fashion history lovers, there is a Black Fashion History podcast called Black Fashion History Podcast by Taniqua Rust that is absolutely wonderful. She has this incredible range of topics, including episodes on designers like Anne Lowe, Zelda Wynn Valdez, Scott Berries. And then she also has interviews with like today's fashion insiders and makers, such as the menswear designer Shaka King, milliner Lisa McFadden. And I loved her recent interview with supermodel Carol Collins Miles, who is one of the original members of Hubert de Givenchy's All Black Cabine, April Yay! in the 1970s. Yes. Uh, so it was a really, really enlightening episode. Just a really wonderful resource. She, of course, has an Instagram account. And then she has a wonderful merchandise as well. And I also wanted to shout out another Instagram and an, an episode that she did on the Grandassa models, Ambassadors of Black is Beautiful movement. She interviewed Sinke Brathwaite, 
in a two-part episode. He is actually the son and nephew of the groundbreaking All Back Modeling Troupe and Modeling Agency's founders. So his father, Alambe, and his uncle, Kwame Brothwaite, are pioneers of the Black arts movement of the 60s and 70s with their African Jazz Art Society and Studio, or AJAS, which was instrumental in promoting Black culture throughout the era. Actually, January 28th marked the 60th anniversary since AJAS's groundbreaking 1962 fashion show, Naturally 62, the original African coiffure and fashion extravaganza designed to restore our racial pride and standards, which launched the Black is Beautiful slogan and movement. And we actually talked about this a little bit with Tanisha Ford in her episode, but just this, just an incredible celebration of natural Black beauty. And the models really had this profound influence on popular culture and something that continues to this very day. So check it out. Yes. There is so much fashion history happening right now. I just want to say maybe we need to do a little rundown of some of the fashion exhibitions that are up that people can see right now. And I'll start with my latest because uh, just last week I was able to go see Reinvention and Restlessness Fashion in the 90s, which is up through April 17th, 2022 at the Museum at FIT. And some of you might recall that we actually did an episode on this exhibition in April of 2021 because it was curated by past dressed guest Colleen Hill. And what happened was the exhibition catalog for the exhibition actually came out before the exhibition went up because of COVID. So the exhibition is now open. So you can return back to those episodes from 2021 to hear more about our discussion on how in many ways 1990s fashion is and was resistant to categorization. Um, But it was this incredibly ripe decade for fashion. And there were many, many different influential themes that emerged in the span of this, you know, give or take 10 years. When you go into the exhibition, it's for that very reason that Colleen has organized the physical exhibition into eight distinct categories, which explore restlessness in the decade's fashion, as exemplified by, quote, minimalism, grunge, deconstruction and the avant-garde, and the revival of luxury. And then the reinvention part of the exhibition is exemplified by, quote, retro revivals, technology, environmentalism, and reuse, and also the global wardrobe. And, and Cass, I have to say that the exhibition was popping the day that I went to visit. It was <laughs> yeah, it's getting so much press. There, it's yeah. everywhere right now. Yeah, and so many of the students were in the museum's galleries, um, not on class visits, but they're all on their own because so many of them are completely enamored with 90s fashion. And I can't say that I can blame them because seeing the exhibition was really like seeing old friends again. Right. right. Um, (laughs) You know, it was like... From the liquid sexiness of Tom Ford's knit jersey gowns to, you know, that iconic Versace safety pin dress that Elizabeth Hurley wore on the runway. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not on the runway, on the red carpet, actually. Um, To, you know, rock and roll vibes from Anna Sui, taking on grunge and deconstructionism of Margiela. I mean, there's something for everyone in there. And there's a lot of takeaway here that kind of drives home the point on how influential the 1990s were when really shaping the landscape of contemporary fashion today. So pop on over there if you're in NYC. Um, And if you aren't in NYC, Colleen's accompanying book, Reinvention and Restlessness, Fashion in the 90s, is available online. So check that out too. It's great. 
Yeah, and we love the museum at FIT for many reasons, but also the fact that it's free to the public. They usually have a exhibition upstairs in the rotating galleries as well. So you get two exhibitions for the price of zero dollars. So yes, check it, yes, check yes, it yes. out for sure. Open Tuesday through Sunday afternoons. Oh, yes. Good note. I've actually been there many times when it's closed and I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you should know this, Cassidy. I was actually in New York recently. I guess it was last year. So in December. And so I finally got to see in America a lexicon of fashion. So we've already talked about that on an episode last season. But just a reminder, dress listeners, that the first incarnation, it's a two-part exhibition, which means we're getting two Met Galas. So the first part in America, a lexicon of fashion is still open. And the second part in America, an anthology of fashion, which is going to be spread across the museum in their period rooms, will open on May 7th after the Met Gala. So we're looking forward to that for sure. You also have a couple weeks to check out Christian Dior, designer of dreams at the Brooklyn Museum. We, of course, did an uh, interview on this. Gosh, it might have been two years ago now. This exhibition's been touring the world, touring America. So, so incredible. Uh, Definitely check that out if you haven't already. Yes, the show is amazing. And I can testify that because I've now seen it three times. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wanted to say, if you saw the show in Paris, it's probably substantially different because apparently 65% of the garments are different in this incarnation because they can't be touring for that long. Also in this new incarnation, there is a section on Dior New York uh, that has been added on Dior's American line that wasn't in Paris apparently. But I will issue a small word of caution because I heard it through the rumor mill last week that all of the remaining tickets have been sold out until the 20th. But maybe there's a black market for Dior tickets. Yeah, (laughs) work your magic, friends. Um, Maybe they'll do an extension. I'm not sure. But I just wanted to issue that that slight word of caution. Well, if you can, check it out. And we're going to leave New York now because also the Patrick Calloway Runway of Love is still at the De Young Museum on view until April 24th. So check that out if you're in San Francisco. And then if you head on over to Paris, there is a seismic like multi-museum exhibition on Yves Saint Laurent. So the New York Times tells us all about it. They said 60 years to the day after showing his first collection under his own name, Yves Saint Laurent, the designer who is synonymous with French fashion and who died in 2008, is once again taking Paris by storm. Or rather his creations are. So from Saturday through May 15th, 50 pieces from the Couturier's vast body of work will be shown among the permanent collections at five of France's most prestigious museums. So the Louvre, the Musée d'Orsay, the Centre Pompidou, the Musée d'Art Moderne de Paris, and the Musée Picasso Paris. And of course, the Museum Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> yes, of course. And they're kind of like, some of those ensembles are like integrated into the other museum's collections, kind of juxtaposed with other pieces. It's very cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's really about highlighting this blurred or non-existent line in YSL's work between art and fashion. It's really something that was always at the core of his aesthetic. He was hugely inspired by art. And the co-curator of the show, Muna McCure, and I apologize if that is not the correct pronunciation, 
But she's a contemporary art specialist. This is apparently her first fashion exhibition. And she really says that, you know, fashion and art traditionally have existed in parallel worlds and that separation no longer applies. She told the New York Times that I think in 2022, we live in a time when we no longer need to ask the questions about whether fashion is art or whether art is art. So it really, like you said, April blurs those lines. For instance, they have like his famous Mondrian-inspired gown next to a Mondrian. So those are the sort Mm -hmm. of conversations that are happening by putting his pieces in these museum spaces and really showing those conversations in really beautiful, exquisite ways. So we're jealous if you get to see those dress listeners. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, and just very, very briefly, I just want to mention an exhibition that we can all see because you might not be in New York, you might not be in Paris, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I just wanted to give a shout out to Summer Lee's online exhibition, which is called Incendiary, A History of Red Lingerie, which is going to be up just in time for Valentine's Day. And basically the exhibition uses 30 or so garments dating from the 19th century, all the way up to contemporary lingerie design that all feature the color red. And each through each time period, she examines the multitude of meanings of the color red and that particular garment within the kind of, you know, silhouette of the era. So if you're looking for a little Valentine's Day lingerie inspiration, you can head over to the underpinningsmuseum.com to check out the exhibition Incendiary and learn more. We are also jealous if you are also in Paris and you yes. get to see the Thierry Mugler exhibition that is up right now at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs. And this is the exhibition entitled Couturisme, which was originally mounted at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts back in 2019. And I do believe it's a slightly different incarnation again. And I love it when museums do this. It's, you know, it's not just the same show traveling from one place to the next. They're always kind of adding and changing and adapting um, the show a little bit. But at uh, Musée des Arts Décoratifs right now, you can expect to see, as they say, Mugler's exceptional creations will mark the return of this visionary artist to Paris, where his fame began nearly five decades ago. From ready-to-wear and haute couture silhouettes to stage costumes, photographs, and films, and unpublished archives dating from between 1973 to 2014, Thierry Mugler, Couturisme, will showcase the fascinating universe of this creator and his multiple collaborations in the fields of entertainment, music, and cinema. And I just have to say this exhibition, if not already incredibly important when it was produced in Montreal, became all the more poignant now with Mugler's passing at age 73 just a few weeks ago on January 23rd, which is very sad. I did mention earlier this week that I do plan on doing an expanded episode on him quite soon, but uh, just very, very quickly, I wanted to give you a brief bio here on him and some of the points about his significance in the history of fashion. Um, He was actually born Manfred Terry Mugler in 1948 in Strasbourg, France, and his early youth was spent pursuing a career as a ballet dancer. And that connection to sort of performance and spectacle was something that carried on throughout his later career as a fashion designer. And we see him first mentioned in the context of fashion in the press in 1967 in Women's Wear Daily, um, who did a feature on him and his business partner's Paris-based accessory business. And at that time, Mugler was only 21 years old, but by the 1970s, he had transitioned from accessories to clothes and became really this 
incredible fashion designer with this incredibly unique vision. One of his obituaries recently published this quote, which I thought was quite fascinating. They noted him as, quote, the principal architect of a style that washed away the minimalism of the late 70s and replaced it with an aesthetic of power dressing that was both bombastic and camp, a comic book fusion of S&M and high fashion in which a drag queen, a prostitute, and a Reaganite social x-ray of Bonfire of the Vanities became almost a single person as if standing in a three-way mirror. (laughs) So there is a lot to unpack there. We're going to do that on a later episode. Um, We're going to explore his history and kind of all the way up into his more recent collaborations with Lady Gaga, Cardi B, and as the designer of Kim Kardashian's latex wet look dress, which she wore to the Met Ball in 2019. So just know that that is coming and we're really going to get in there and do a deep dive on him. Yeah, what a seismic loss for the fashion industry. Terry Mugler was so instrumental in so many incredible ways. And also his passing was met by the loss of another fashion giant in the industry, Andre Leon Talley, the trailblazing fashion editor and creative director, fashion historian, tastemaker, stylist, all-around fashion icon and pioneer, died on January 18th at the age of 73 years old, April Such a loss for so many people. His passing Mm -hmm. sent shockwaves through the industry. Social media and news outlets kind of exploded with people paying homage to a man who made such a giant impact on not just the industry, but in people's lives. Yes. I mean, there were so many news articles out there celebrating his life and legacy, um, including one of the articles by Robin Gavon of the Washington Post, who says, quote, Andre Leon Talley became an icon by never losing faith in the glory of fashion. And she also wrote that he was, quote, a majestic and imperious figure in his robes and velvet slippers, a godfather full of grace, pulling others into his light. And uh, she goes on to write also that the fashion editor, Andre Leon Talley, achieved rarefied status in an industry that he had to bend to his will. When he arrived in New York in the early 1970s with his degrees in French history and literature, he was a tall, skinny black man from the segregated South who barreled through the gilded doors of a world that was populated by European aristocrats, ivory-skinned socialites, limousine liberals and snobs. (laughs) He rose to the ranks due to his intelligence and savvy as well as his unrelenting belief in the glories and glamour of fashion. When he died Tuesday at 73, he had achieved greatness in his profession. I just love Robin's writing so much, by the way. I know. I mean, she and she's moved beyond fashion at this point. She's one of their senior journalists now. um, And because she's such an incredible journalist and just like writer in so many ways, but cultural um, observer. Yes. And she she brought all of that to her article on Andre Leontali's legacy, as did a a lot of many people. I mean, um, he, of course, will get in his own episode, just like Terry in the future. But There was just so many articles on Andre's life and legacy that we just wanted to highlight a few that really give a well-rounded perspective to just how influential and important he was. Um, Actually, days following his passing, a recent dress guest, Jason Cyrus, reached out to me, and he's actually done quite a bit of work on Andre's career and studied his Vogue oeuvre. Specifically, he also knew Andre personally, and he interviewed him, and he wrote to me that out of concern of the, quote, many media articles eulogizing his life, mentioned little about Andre's scholarly achievements and nothing about the activist nature of his articles. This absence is a tremendous disservice to his legacy. We can't just remember him as a fabulous wit. He was so much more. And he kind of talks about how there's, um, you know, Andre was a controversial and complicated figure. And he says that, you know, his findings stand in stark contrast to this opinion that Andre did not do enough 
throughout his career to foster diversity. And he says that while he understands um, why scholars are critical of Andre, he says that we must consider him in the context of his time and the immense pressure to be, as Hilton Alls memorably remarked in 1994, the only one. Uh, yeah, and Cyrus argues that through his um, columns, Vogue View, Style Facts, and Life with Andre, that Tally, quote, used his extensive knowledge of art, popular culture, history, and fashion to create a literary world reflective of his own cultivated perspective, raising the status of racialized identities to that of the hegemonic white Western ideal of beauty. His strategy succeeded even when his was the sole diversity-driven voice in a magazine which often included stereotypical depictions of ethnic identities or let them out entirely. The subversive nature of Tally's culturally literate writing derives from its placement in a globally circulated popular culture magazine. Hiding in plain sight were his revolutionary views on beauty, race, and luxury. I therefore argue that an analysis of Andre Leon Tally's Vogue oeuvre reveals content that is a politically subversive and a form of literary activism. Yes. And there's another great article from past dress guest, Denise C. Ford, how Andre Leon Talley defined style in his own terms. And she's really trying to highlight how Andre's influence extended well beyond the pages of Vogue. She talks about his contributions as the editor at Ebony Magazine before he went to Vogue, as well as his work with the Savannah College of Art and Design, which honored him with a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2000 before renaming the prize after him because he just did so much to promote that school and their fashion collection. Um, and she said that SCAD gave Tally a place to formalize his vision for a more liberated fashion future. There he created exhibitions, served as a trustee, mentored the next generation of designers and stylists. And then she just says, beyond his impact at Vogue, he inspired the everyday Black, Brown, and queer folks who admired him to define creative freedom on their own terms. And in their fearless self-stylings, his memory remains. And in the days following Andre's passing, as we mentioned, numerous people expressed their gratitude for what he meant to them. That included British Vogue editor-in-chief Edward Innenfold, who said, without you, there would be no me. Thank you for paving the way. So just, um, uh, so, it makes me want to cry. I mean, he just touched so many people in so many ways. Yes, including fashion historian and also past dressed guest Eric Darnell Pritchard, who told Fashionista, quote, Andre Leon Talley's presence was for me a child turned teenage fashion nerd, an affirmation that my wholehearted love of fashion, history, and image craft was more than a whimsical predilection for the sublime that was wasting time and would lead to nowhere. Yes, some say you are too much and expect you to make yourself small as a condition of acceptance and even as a modicum of safety as a queer youth who is different, but authenticity has its rewards. Yes, the living library of cultural history, the smartest person in the room, not only can be, but already is, in fact, a Black person. Yeah, and in closing, we just wanted to end with a quote from Andre that he told The Guardian in an interview because it really is a beautiful expression about his philosophy and approach to not just fashion, but, but life in general. He said that my story is a fairy tale of excess and in every fairy tale, there is evil and darkness, but you overcome it with light. I want every person I come across, the stranger on the street, the church member in the pew next to me to feel love. And like I said, so many people testing to the fact that they felt love from Andre were all better for his existence in so many ways. And if you want to learn more about him, dress listeners, there's no dearth of information. <laughs> he actually did quite a few podcast interviews. He wrote multiple memoirs, including the recently published The Chiffon Trenches. There's also the documentary, The Gospel, according to Andre. And we'll put links to some of these things in our show notes. So 
So many fashion greats lost this year, April. Um, and we haven't even talked about the fact that we lost Virgil Abloh last year in November to cancer. So just, you know, in closing, dress listeners, may you remember what and who you love about fashion next time you get dressed. We would love to hear from you if you'd like to write to us with suggestions for episodes. You can do so via email at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. And you will have more Dressed coming your way next week on Tuesday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.